Mindfulness Mode 413. Cocaine really wasn't my problem. Um, cocaine was just what I did to service my problem. Hey, Bruce here. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode again. And you probably are here because you care about being focused. You care about mindfulness. You want to become more grounded. I have recorded a meditation about waking up in the morning with focus, with energy, waking up so that you're ready for the day. Be the energetic person you desire to be. You can download this free guided meditation at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash awaken with focus. Awaken with focus. Today's episode Wow, I tell you, it really impacted me because his book is powerful. I read that book from cover to cover and I just found it, it was so incredible. And the book is about pain and so many other things. The book is called Perfect Pain. He wrote this book hoping that you can understand how we can learn from pain. Sit back, relax, and find out how you can learn from Param Parastram. We have an amazing author with us today, and his name is Param Parastram. Hey, Param, are you in mindfulness mode today? I'm always in mindfulness mode. You're always in mindfulness mode. Well, I finished reading your book last night, Perfect Pain, and whoa, there were some real painful parts where you just completely came clean and revealed some pretty amazing and sometimes nasty parts of your life. At least it certainly seemed like that. Uh, well, we're, we're talking about mindfulness here today. What does mindfulness mean to you, Param? It means being in the present. And for me, mindfulness is about kind of the now. Um, we like to spend time thinking about the future and what that may bring. And we like to spend time looking in the rearview mirror and where we've been. But what I really want to feel mindfulness and what I, and the way I interpret it is me just kind of being in the now. I'm here with you today talking, and I want to really just try to be here with you today talking and not be um, thinking about picking up my kids in the 35 minutes and, and et cetera. And that's what it means to me. Well, I want to share a bit about you with my listeners. Param Parastaran is an Iranian-American entrepreneur and author with a passion for discussing mental health issues in the business community. After fleeing Iran as a child during the midst of the Iranian Revolution, he became the epitome of the American dream. What a story you tell in this book, Perfect Pain. I mean, it really did reveal a lot of pain. But why did you call your book Perfect Pain, Param? Because I honestly felt at the end of the day, everything that, that I endured or everything I went through was perfect. It's, it, it basically got to be where I wanted to be. It, 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 was, it, was, it was painful enough where I had a way of out of it. You know, it wasn't so far where there wasn't a way out of it. And at the end of the day, when I look back and when I really started writing it, in fact, I, I, I started, I named the book before I even wrote it because I was feeling that this journey has been perfect and I wouldn't trade being abused. I wouldn't trade, you know, escaping from Iran. I wouldn't trade being a poor immigrant kid. I wouldn't trade it for the world because at the end of the day, it got to me, it got me to where, first of all, I'm sitting here with you. And secondly, being able to discuss this type of thing. And so it was perfect. Wow. 
Well, your wife walked into you, walked into your man cave and found you passed out naked, lying on the bar with glass shards everywhere. How, how did you get through that experience? You mean that particular experience? Yeah, that particular oh. one. It just sounded, it just seemed particularly drastic and dramatic. Yeah, you know, in the book I talk about it a little bit, but I was good at fixing things. Um, I had just a, a a history of of breaking things and finding my way out of them, breaking things and finding my way out of them. In this case, it was no differently. It was basically telling my wife and telling myself and telling my friends and her friends that, Hey, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. I'm getting better. Whether that was genuine at the time or whether it wasn't, it was convincing enough to give me another day to fight. And I had a history of this. I would break things and destroy things. And then because I was so terrified of losing something, then I would somehow fix myself for four days or five days or whatever it took at that time. Sometimes I needed only to fix myself for two days. Sometimes I needed to fix myself for two weeks. It didn't really matter what Whatever it took, I did because I needed to get back to even again so that I can go and break things. Well, you lived a double life for a long time and you you uh, didn't live a very truthful life with a lot of the people in your life because you would you would take off and you would do drugs for hours and hours. Well, I guess days. a couple of days, days at a time. How did you possibly keep all that secret from your wife and your co-workers? Um, the wife obviously was the most difficult and I did it for quite a long time. And most of the time, um, but I would fail, I would break, I would make mistakes. And so in my mind, I thought I was keeping it, but I think if you really question the people around me and the friends, and they kind of all knew that, ah, this he's, he's a little bit of a liar. He's embellishing here. But so in my world to keep myself sane, I, I sort of believe that I've been keeping very two things separately, but the truth is it got very difficult and it became to the point where it was impossible. It was literally impossible. Um, on many levels, it was impossible just on a um, philosophical level and, and just, you know, I didn't think I was a bad person, but here I'm living a life where I'm telling people that I love lies. And so there was issues there and conflicts there. Then there was the physical conflict of not being around and not being mindful when I'm around. Um, and it, it just all came to a, it just came to a place where it was impossible to manage. Well, you, uh, you talk about truth in your book, and it sounds like truth is very important to you. It, when you went to your therapist, you made up your mind everything was going to be about truth. So it was like you had these double double standards. Now, what does truth look like in your life? Truth looks like somebody who speaks to one another, somebody who thinks without any fear. And without without thinking internally well if i say this well then what happens if someone thinks this or if i say this what is the consequence over here for me truth is that if i'm talking to you and i'm being with you that you need to be 100% sure that you have the best of parm at any given point. I'm not perfect. I will make mistakes. I will say things that are inaccurate. But what you will know forever and ever is that when I interviewed Parham, he was with me and, and he was talking to me in the best authentic way that he possibly is capable of. So what would you say to somebody who might say to you, gee, Parham, I read your book and I just honestly don't feel like I can trust you all the time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say that's, you know, uh, I love you anyway. And um, hopefully someday you can. 
mirrors were a big part of your book. There was a chapter, chapter 24, you called it Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, and your therapist helped you through what you went through with mirrors. Let's talk about that. Man, it's a, it's funny that you say that. Today, I'm going to show you, today I was recording a, a video and I had this mirror out trying to make an illustration. Mirroring yeah. is looking at yourself. And in the talk, in the, in, the, in, the, in my conversation in the book with it, mirroring had to do with how you're raised. And when we're raising our children, ideally, um, we want our kids to see a perfect reflection of themselves and actually who they are. That's the mirror to actually see themselves. You know, we're not perfect as parents. We don't know how to do all these things. And unfortunately, we all have fears and anxieties and and stresses and our kids see that. And so when they're looking at themselves, because they're looking at us, we are serving as their mirror. And unfortunately, parents, based on their lives, provide an accurate view of them, the kids, of the little infant, right? And then they go through the rest of life really not knowing what that is. And they're looking at their parents for their behavior, their reaction to, to the, if they cry, what happens? If they do this, what happens? And then essentially, we don't become ourselves. And, and um, some have it at higher degrees like myself, and some have it at varying degrees. And, and obviously, a little bit of imperfect mirroring is normal. Um, but mine was excessive, and I didn't really have a good visual of myself. Right. Well, that word perfect, it seemed like it had a special significance in this book. And in, in the Iranian culture, is being perfect a, a really important thing? Yeah. Yeah. But it's but what really perfect means is is that it hides all of any kind of a shameful insecurity that they have. So it's not just being really good. It's being perfect. You know, when you go into some of the people's house and you sit on the living room couch, they have... Sometimes they have uh, they, they have cloth over it, right, to, yeah. as to protect that, and that really symbolizes in, in in a great way how they think. Now, this could we could go back and go thousands of years to the history of Iran and the rich history of the kings and the shahs and all this kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, it is a way to ward themselves off any imperfection. So the opposite of it is perfection. Well, it was so interesting because. It sounded like there was a huge disconnect between you and your parents. They did not share very much with you about where you were going, what you were doing when you were a kid. That didn't seem like they listened to you. It just seemed like they went on their way and you were along for the ride. But you never held it against your parents, it seemed like. How how could that be? How could you not hold it against them? Well, I had a 15-year or so massive cocaine habit. So I just displaced it. So it was there, the anger, the sadness, the disappointment, all of those things that you described, they were there, they were inside my body. It's just, I did everything else that I could in my life between the cocaine and being successful and money and all of these things to not have to feel that. Now, your question is good, but I actually did go through a period while in therapy where I did feel all the anger and I did hold it against them. But then I had to learn to love them like I do everybody and realized that it wasn't malicious. And it was very important for me to, to separate that it wasn't malicious versus just incompetence or just limited parents. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. You talk about cocaine as your friend. It was your pal. It was your buddy. How were you able to change that relationship with this beast? I mean, most people who get hooked on, on cocaine cannot ditch it. How did you do that? Yeah, well, realizing that cocaine really wasn't my problem, um, 
cocaine was just what I did to service my problem. And ultimately, I feel the same way, and this is controversial, that it's it's never about the drug, and it's not how powerful that drug was. The second I started getting healthy and where I loved myself and I cared about myself, it was just irrelevant. You can put a pile of cocaine in front of me right now and whatever. It, it, I may even do it. It doesn't matter. I wouldn't do it, but it, it wouldn't trigger off and, oh, my God, this powerful chemical. It's 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 whole inside, and it, it I don't need it. Um, it doesn't serve that purpose anymore. And so it didn't happen overnight, but but it was a gradual thing. But that's how I tapered that demon. How can you sober up with scotch? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> I don't sober up when I drink you scotch. You apparently have never done two two eight balls in one night. <laughs> I have not done that stuff, no. It's very easy. It's very and you, easy. And scotch actually helps you sober up. Yes, because I'd be so wired, you know, and, and it, a bottle of scotch for me to drink was nothing in one night. It would, Sometimes it would be more. It would be nothing. I would drink and it So what hour. it really does is it kind of brings, brings you it down. down yes. I see it. So when you say sober up, that's what you mean. It brings you down from that, from that cocaine high. Yes. Yeah. Right. I see. Yeah. You really described this in the book so that it it was just brutal. I mean, you just brutally beat the shit out of your body, didn't you? (laughs) I love the way you describe it and your passion for it. But you, you, I mean, I, you're describing exactly what I want to have happened. I, I wanted you to feel that way when you read it because I wanted to make a difference and uh, of people really sort of embracing how how awesome it can be or how crazy it is this guy's so crazily uh, honest and and just blatantly and ridiculously vulnerable and honest about it. And that's exactly kind of the reaction I want. And so, yeah, I did it. I just it was just it was just inside. I just talked. I don't know how your body isn't like so damaged as a result of all this shit you put through it. it. It probably is. And, you know, I even worked out during those times. I was, you know, I would have periods where I would work out and be healthy. And it was just a, it's like a period I don't ever want to touch again. I don't ever want to understand how that happened. Um, it's hard for me to understand how I'm alive, to, to be yeah, honest. I can believe it. Um, you know, so many stories, so many, I mean, it was hard to put, I didn't put that book down. I mean, I just read it from the beginning to the end and it was just so compelling on page 93. And I quote this, you said, I snapped, you were talking about what happened during a boxing match and, and that, that instant you just snapped. How did that change your life when that happened? Well, it just got me right back to what I was trying to avoid. My temper was off the charts. And and the reason I had the temper was kind of what we just spoke about a little bit earlier. I had angry issues. You know, my anger issues, I was mad at my parents for moving me 11 times without telling me what we're doing and, and what we're doing. Moving you from, you know, one country to another without really telling you what you're doing. So that anger hit inside my body and it came out in those tempermatic ways. And when I snapped was basically me trying to sober my temper and trying to do this unrealistic thing that I was doing with my mind and saying, I'm going to be a nice, calm guy and I'm going to go do boxing. I snapped and went right back to that person, that kid that was disturbed. Well, and you you just kept doing these U-turns all the time in your life. You would have this thing happen, things were going well, and then all of a sudden, bang. And then you'd 
regroup and everything would go okay again. You said leaving Gurney, Illinois was the worst experience of your life. And I'm, I'm like, whoa, really? That <laughs> really, was that the was worst? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I can see that it was bad, but was that really the worst? Tell us about it. The reason I say that, and, and I do, and, 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 and I can describe it to you, as you saw in the book, I, with music. When I listen to music from that, that, that genre, that period of time, it makes me really sad. And what it was is that it was the first time I felt for a brief moment a family and some stability with people and friends. That's it. I lost what I thought was going to be a lifelong of, of a relationship with certain friends that I had. I felt, you know, I was playing football. I was the quarterback. I was, I, I had a first time a feeling of a belonging. Um, and I didn't need to worry about my parents' issues or my financial issues or any of these things. I was really in a nice pocket of time and it just ended. And so that's why. Wow. Wow. And how did you use mindfulness in order to regroup every time you did it? Well, I did mindfulness was what's a much later really understanding it, but the the periods of regrouping were out of fear. You know, it was I need today, right at this moment in time, I am going to lose something. And it might have been at that time uh, getting kicked out of school. It might have been losing my wife. It might have been, you know, losing money. It might have been losing whatever. But in that moment in time, I needed a group and I had to get into the now. And the now wasn't pretty, but I had to just solve. So I became very present and had to just fix things. You have this image fixed in your brain of when you were escaping Iran and you were just two or three feet from this big fat man. You describe him on the train as you were 24 hours on this train. Tell us about this memory that's etched in your mind. <laughs> I don't know why this memory is etched in my mind. I think that symbolized I was looking at this face that had what Tabir's makeup on it and this and this clothing that was very colorful. And it was this very unbelievable image of beauty, actually, of, of it was kind of a beautiful man wrapped in this textile of color. And then simultaneously, it was a man getting beaten by guards and he was a smuggler. So I think it was this irony of these two sort of places I was in life. I was a kid and, you know, you look at all, you know, just like any other kid, you're, you know, you don't have a lot of problems or you don't think a lot of them, but yet at the same time, I'm in this train with a bunch of smugglers. And I think it was these two different sort of um, images that, that that's probably why I, it, it was captured the way it was for me. Let's talk about vulnerability. I mean, you just, it felt like there wasn't anything you didn't tell me. And I don't know, like maybe there's tons of stuff you didn't tell me in this book, but the vulnerability that you must have had to have to write this book. Did you think about your kids and when they would read it? Let's talk about how that felt to you. It's, it's, it's the driving force. So I believe that back to your Persian question, the Iranians, the perfection, right? And so... Persian kids, other cultures, they behave in a certain way because they want to appease their their parents and their and their family or whatever history that family has. And what they end up doing is not being themselves. And the reason to do that is out of fear. So if I can tell my kids that your dad is imperfect, and here's a long list of reasons why your dad struggled and it was imperfect. He had depression, he had a cocaine habit, he was abused by a man. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It will hopefully give them all the power and all the arsenal, arsenal 
for them to be able to lead their life going forward, never ever having to worry about me making judgment on them. They are now forever free to be exactly who they are, their own brand within themselves. All I have three daughters, I want them all to be exactly them. I don't want them to conform to anything dictated by me. And that is to me the most powerful gift I feel like I give my children. Wow, that's that's an incredible gift. Well, you went to therapy. You thought he was going to diagnose you with something, but you never ever imagined it was going to be that D word, did you? And then you ended up saying in the book that you th- you feel as though 80% of the population suffers from depression of some kind. Yes. How did how was this not PTSD? How was this not post traumatic stress disorder that you were experiencing? You know, it's a good question. Um, th- what I the reason I know that it's not post traumatic is because of the tie into the insecurity as a child and the vulnerability that I had a child of not connecting. Had I potentially had a great relationship with my parents, very connected, open communication, mirrored correctly. Remember that mirror word, but mirrored correctly. And then I have. You know, and then I go off tracks and I go into this other crazy path. Then you might, we might have a PSP, that, that conversation, right? Yeah, PTSD. PTSD, yeah. sorry. But, but because I had this fundamental underlying core, lack of core strength, it was very obvious that it was something much more deeper and not something, um, in, you know, triggering like from a specific event. Yeah. And so psychoanalysis helped you immensely. Do you still go for therapy? I go twice a week. Oh, you still Absolutely. do? You go twice a week? Oh, all, oh my God, yeah. If I go three times a week in, in, in weeks that I can, time-wise, yeah. I will never you still have the same therapist? Same therapist, Dr. Jekyll. Wow, Dr. Jekyll. He sounds incredible. And that's his real name. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny that his name is it's Dr. Jekyll. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it is unbelievable. <laughs> wow, yeah, you really talked about this in a lot of detail. Now, when I got to the end of the book, it felt like, wow, you went through all this, and now things have kind of fallen into place. Everything's good. Everything's s- smooth sailing. Is it smooth sailing? I, I hate saying things like this, but I, I, I don't... It's I'm blessed. Um, I the things that matter to me the most are going really well. I can't I can't believe to this day that this will sound corny and for all you viewers, but I'm in love with my wife and my wife is in love with me and I'm in love with my children. My children are in love with me, and it's and it's real. Um, we like being together. We're close. We talk. Um, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how this has all happened, but it's unbelievable. And it is not one of those bullshit stories where, you know, you, you get out of a drug problem because it really wasn't a drug problem. It was a love problem. It was a connection problem. And, and I'm alive and I'm alive and I'm just incredibly blessed. And it, and it is, it is going very well. What has your wife taught you about mindfulness? Oh gosh. You'd have to ask her. Um, she's, she's one of these people that is more, nuts and bolts and 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 today let's this is what's going on today this is what's going on today um that would be the best thing i could tell you how i she's taught you know she how she would speak about mindfulness if she was going to the other thing is she's also one of these people that is um kind of like fake it till you make it which isn't necessarily exactly what i would think of a boner but it's basically like we're gonna get through it and so we're gonna figure out a way to get through this and 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 be happy while we're doing it but well she must have loved you like just from the bottom of her heart to hang in there because I don't know how she did it. <laughs> she was devoted. And I think what 
God bless her. And I think what, what she saw was that at the end of the day, I, I didn't want this for myself. She, she knew deep down the person she married was not this awful wanting to live this. He had much but bigger aspirations of life. And this is exactly why I'm here talking to you and, and, and the rest of the people around the world whenever I get the opportunity is because um, this is what it's all about for me. And this is what I was intended to do and meant to be. And so it was perfect. Again, it, it, it was meant to be for some of those things to maybe happen. Yeah, perfect pain. Did you ever bully anybody? Did, did you have a story about bullying? Maybe somebody bullied you. Well, you told a few stories in the book, but do you have a story you can share with us? The, the, the real bullying that I remember that I regret was at that bus stop I briefly talked about in the book. And the yeah. only reason I talk about in the book was I was actually just trying to tell the reader how I was building up with my anger. That's the real reason I was saying, I did not have an internal nature to Burley because I actually had the opposite. I, I don't remember if I talked about this book, but I was kind of a Robin Hood guy. I was the guy that beat up the bullies. I was, I, I was attracted to defensive, defenseless people and the weak because I was weak. So I tended to attract towards the weak and I used to want to fight against the bully. So bullying by definition is somebody that's weak picking on a weaker or feeling that somebody's weak as of their own issues. And I actually was uh, completely the opposite of that. I was the one that would stand in front and fight with others against the bullies. I didn't think you were weak. I didn't think you came across as a weak person in this book. Interesting. Interesting. Internally, like at the core of my self-esteem was weak. At the core of the self-esteem absolutely was weak, which is what what brought out some of those other characteristics. But at a deep, deep level, and we can talk about this another time, but, you know, the reason maybe I was abused was because I was the weak link. Right. I mean, the animals in, in the wild, they hunt and they go after those, you know, and, they, and but emotionally I was weak. Right. Um, wow. I just felt this this connection with you, but you have an amazing connection with other people. You're a very social person. You can connect with people very quickly. Is that part of mindfulness? Is that part of, do you think it's part of mindfulness? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, this is something I think about. This is something I talked with Dr. Jekyll a lot. I, I, I was kind of just lucky in that sense where it was easy for me with people. But I think the mindfulness part that would come with me is I was good at, listening to people and then in return, giving them what they want is, which is ultimately to feel good because I always felt people were just a little bit displaced. They were just a little bit off and needed just a little bit something. And so is that mindfulness? Is that my awareness? Is that my really being in the present with some people in, in these, in, in with how I connected with human beings? You tell me, I don't know, but that's how I, that's how I've always thought about it. Well, as we move toward the end of the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Oh, so boy. just just 30 second answers are perfect. Who's one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Oh my gosh, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, oh yeah, he's awesome. Uh, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? I think it keeps them under keel. I think it keeps them at a steadier rate than um, not. And in, in, in the psychoanalysis, we call it self-regulation of your self-esteem. I think it keeps it more of an even keel. And how is breathing part of your mindfulness? <laughs> I do actually practice breathing. Um, it's another way that I try to think of it in terms of finding the present and 
and the other way that it does for me, it, it humbles me. And, and the reason it humbles me, it reminds me that I have a human and living body so I can hear my organs and, you know, I can really feel those things. And it's, um, it just, it, it humbles me and, and, and reduces me smaller. And, and that always is a, is a healthy exercise for me. Your book, Perfect Pain, is unbelievable. It's outstanding. Thank you. you can find it at perfectpain.com. Are there any other books related to mindfulness that you would recommend? I wish I could answer and say I do. The sad part is I read so many random books, but I don't finish a lot of books. I mean, um, I'm reading a book. I can't remember the name. Um, I'm reading books on meditation these days. <laughs> yeah, are you? Yes, I'm, I'm, and I'm reading, and I just can't keep, the names can't pop into my head, but I have two books that I'm reading. I, if, I think it's over there, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn to, to, to understand meditation a little bit more. And uh, I'm trying to just and, and, and behaviorally learn some of the exercises. And I think that obviously goes hand in hand with mindfulness. But um, but there's not a particular book. There's two books that I'm reading and uh, that are sitting on my bedside. So uh, do you meditate? I'm practicing doing it. So what I do now is to make sure that's what I was recording the video today that I was telling when I put the mirror. I was basically talking about the time between busy and busy for people. <laughs> like if they're day, you know, they're busy, busy. And then there's that little sliver of time that they can't sit to themselves. So what I do is I just try to sit to myself. So it's not that I go sit in a room in a dark room and sit in, you know, with my legs crossed or whatever like that. It's just making sure that I have periods of time and they're random that I just, just sit. And I just said, this is what we talk about in psychoanalysis is that you need to sit in your depression. And most people can't sit in that depression. It's like they're crawling out of their skin and then they go drink and then they go do this or exercise or obsessively do something. They just can't sit in it. It's a very difficult area. So I don't meditate by definition in the, in the, in the organized and in, in, in a very um, routine way, but I do it all the time. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, it's fascinating talking with you after having read your book, and and it is an easy read, but it's it's dramatic. It's just filled with with just so much movement, and uh, nothing stays the same for any <laughs> any length of time. You just go, go, going. And what about you? You've sold your business. What are you doing now? I'm doing uh, I'm doing everything and anything I can to 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 spread. The idea and and my desire for people to become a little more in touch with themselves. This sounds crazy, but I believe that if every single one of us worked on ourselves just a little bit more, and we were just ten percent healthier mentally and and authentically, and become become less and less fake, that I swear the world will be a better place. I think there'll be less division, there'll be less fighting, there'll be less a lot of those things if we start really working more of ourselves. I think we're messed up. Um, but we have hope. Um, I'm, I'm an, I'm an example and, and my work isn't done by the way. And my, my work with Jekyll and my therapy and my development isn't done. So that's, that's an ongoing process. So I'm really dedicated to doing this. I'm, I'm in the process of potentially writing another book and, um, and I'm doing a small business venture with a, with a, with a computer app for my software for businesses that I used to do, but, but more than anything, it's doing the stuff that I'm doing right now here with you. Well, I don't think it does sound crazy. I think it sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank you for writing the book, being so vulnerable. In this I, book. I, I appreciate great. your enthusiasm and, and it's genuine. You're, uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for being on Mindfulness Mode. I appreciate that. You take care. Bye now. Thanks, pleasure. Bye. 
Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, Awaken with Focus a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. You can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh, and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awakenwithfocus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.